great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Dimitri Budes. Hi there. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Hey, great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing rallies here in Taiwan in support of the recent protests in China and Foreign Minister Joseph Wu warning that Beijing could seek to use Taiwan as a scapegoat if demonstrations restart. The DPP seeking to ban people with certain criminal convictions from running for office. The Cabinet passing a draft amendment proposing that all newly constructed, added or altered structures should have rooftop solar panels installed. And a CNN article entitled Taiwan's Living Hell, Traffic is a Tourism Problem, say critics, raising some questions and also causing some head shaking here in Taiwan. But we'll begin with one of Taiwan's forays into the global headlines this week, that being the tall-in ceremony at Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing's new fab in the US state of Arizona. U.S. President Joe Biden was in attendance there, hence the headlines, and he described TSMC's investment in Arizona as a possible game-changer, hailed it as a major step in bolstering manufacturing in the United States, and said that TSMC's $40 billion U.S. dollar investment in Arizona was the largest foreign investment in the history of the state. Now, that statement came just hours after TSMC announced that it was now building a second fab in Phoenix that would use the more advanced 3-nanometer process when production there began in 2026 and ICRT's Hope Go spoke with tech stock specialist Kirk Young, the chairman of Kirkland Capital, who was closely following developments in Phoenix this week and said that he was surprised by the announcement of a second TSMC fab. My first impression of the event is almost like Donald Trump and Terry Gore in Wisconsin, which is probably four or five years ago. If you recall that Donald Trump was the one that really wanted to move everything back to U.S., I mean, manufacturing made in USA. So he had a groundbreaking ceremony with a big sign behind Donald Trump saying made in USA with Terry Gore. Today is a very similar setup. We have President Biden speaking in front of a big sign saying made in USA with all the politicians, including current Arizona governor, Doug Ducey, including the newly elected for the second term uh, senator, uh, Mark Kelly with the com- uh, Commerce Secretary, etc. So it was a very political event, for sure. And all the politicians were pretty happy that TSMC is coming to Arizona to make uh, semiconductors. But what surprised me is that TSMC Chairman Liu actually announced that they're going to increase the capex from $12 billion U.S. dollars to $40 billion U.S. dollars. They also announced that they're going to build a second fab. The first fab was designed for 5 nanometer, which now can do 4 nanometer. And the second fab, they can do 3 nanometer. So I was a little surprised that TFNC will actually accelerate the technology move to Arizona. And uh, with monthly wafer output from 20,000 to 50,000 wafers per month. Because um, I agree with what Morris Chan, the founder, said, a month or years ago, that it makes no sense to make semiconductor fabs wafer in US. The cost is more than 50%, 5-0 more than Taiwan. So 
going to U.S. I think is more a political decision that Taiwan had no choice to move to U.S. But having said that, I was quite surprised to see TSNC actually increase the capex and accelerate the schedule to U.S., which doesn't really make much sense. So that's one big surprise I I saw from today's announcement. Uh, looks like the uh Taiwan might become less important from U.S. perspective. If they move all the technology to U.S., eventually that that could be an issue for Taiwan to watch out. Okay, I was going to ask you what that um what the the building of the second fab and and what the uh, the change in technology meant for TSMC. Uh, does it does it signal a shift in in their priorities? Is it signal a shift in in um, business targets? Well, there might be something behind the scenes that I'm not aware of because from business perspective, it makes no sense to make in U.S. It's more political decision. But even from political decision, uh, hopefully Taiwan government will get something in return because right now Taiwan makes the highest technology semiconductor which uh, uh, make Taiwan an important piece from U.S. government's perspective. If there's ever a war between Taiwan and China, U.S. will have to defend Taiwan to protect technology. But if Taiwan moves a lot of new technology to U.S., Taiwan becomes less important from U.S. perspective. So that's one thing that kind of puzzled me today. I don't know why TSNC is accelerating the technology to U.S. Theoretically, if Taiwan is three years ahead of U.S., i.e. that Taiwan does R&D research development, Taiwan does the one nanometer and two nanometers and three in U.S. Theoretically, that's not bad. But my concern is that uh, if Taiwan moves too fast to U.S., the three-year gap might be compressed to two, even one year, because we don't know how long it would take to develop one nanometer or two nanometer technology. That's a new technology. It must be a lot of roadblocks. So my concern is that if TSA moves too fast to U.S., especially don't forget about Intel. I actually live across the street from Intel in Phoenix. It's about one hour driving distance from Intel to TSMC. Intel is the southern part of Phoenix. TSMC is the northern part of Phoenix. My concern is that Intel might be able to hire a lot of engineers away from TSMC because the unfortunate fact is that the Taiwan engineers at TSMC, uh, they get paid about half or even less than half of what Intel pays its engineers. So my concern is that Intel might be get, getting a lot of know-how from TSMC, especially the EO rate. EO rate for semiconductor is the number one issue. Anybody can buy equipment, anybody can hire engineers, but without good EO rate, nobody can make semiconductors. And that's the biggest bottleneck for Intel. But if Intel were able to hire away the three nanometer and five nanometer engineer from TSMC in the next several years, that could be a concern that TSMC should be very careful of. Okay, we had a few weeks ago Berkshire Hathaway uh, announcing that it was that it had bought a significant number of shares in TSMC. Do you think that that had something to do with the fact that uh, TSMC appears to be pivoting towards the U.S. now? Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, Warren Buffett rarely gets involved with uh, his investments decision, especially Warren Buffett's uh, uh, shares. Is is not that big to have even a board seat, so I don't think Warren Buffett has, has any say in TSMC's business decision. Uh, Warren Buffett's investment style is value as opposed to growth, which means that Warren Buffett like to buy good company at low price. Um, he did that with Apple. He did that with Coca Cola. So I think it's a purely investment decision that Warren Buffett found good value. 
in Taiwan, as you know, TFC share price went below four hundred twenty dollars. That was a very good entry point. So I think it's a purely business decision. Again, I don't think Warren Buffett has anything to do with TFC moving to U.S. Okay, now talk to me about um, splitting up the potential for splitting up research and development and manufacturing. Do you think that's what TSMC is doing? They're going to keep um, R and D here in Taiwan. Uh, while moving their manufacturing uh, capacity to the U.S.? Yes, they have to, and that's their plan. Because of most of the top engineers are in Taiwan, so all the R&D will have to stay in Taiwan, which are the 1 nanometer and the 2 nanometer technology I mentioned earlier. But my concern is that uh, they need to keep at least a three-year gap between Taiwan and U.S. Because if they get too close, then that'll be an issue for Taiwan. Taiwan will lose a lot of competitive advantage. I simply cannot see Taiwan moving R&D to U.S. It makes no sense at all. If that happens, then, <laughs> then we'll be in really big trouble. I hope it doesn't happen. I don't think it makes any sense. But my concern is more from manufacturing perspective than the R&D because manufacturing is the key with the EO rate. That's where you make the money. That's where the competitive advantage comes from. R&D is important, but it takes time from R&D to actual manufacturing to the market. So again, R&D will stay in Taiwan, but the manufacturing um, is actually quite important for TFCC to keep the secret for the for the year rate, for example. Okay. Now, do you think that TSMC's decision to build a second fab plant actually uh, demonstrates a confidence in the quality of U.S. manufacturing that it feels it cannot get by staying in Taiwan? I don't think so. It makes zero business sense. It must be some political issue behind the scene, which I'm not aware of. From business perspective, it makes no sense. Because if you think about technology, uh, it makes sense to make like cars in the US or like big equipment, so like a panel TV. Those big things is kind of hard to ship by sea. It's quite expensive. Shipping semiconductors is very cheap. You can do that by air. You get to US in one day. We talk about you know chips. So you know in the old days with globalization, it made perfect sense to make chips in Taiwan. It might make sense for say for Honghai to make the PCs in the US, um, the big equipments. So again, it makes no business sense. It must be other reasons, such as political reasons, that TSC is, is speeding up the, the 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 process. Okay. With what we're expecting is going to be an increase in manufacturing costs, will this have an impact on TSMC's bottom line? And will it have an impact on its share prices? Uh, it will, but it's very limited. Um, obviously, in the U.S., the gross margin will be lower because the cost is more than half of Taiwan. But I think TSMC might get some subsidies from the local government, maybe even some money from the U.S., the Chips and Science Act. So I think that margin will be a little low, but one, you'll get some help. Number two is that it's a small part of TSMC. So I think the share price for the next three to five years should be okay. They still be the leader. My concern is actually five years later. Five years later, can they keep the technology uh, leadership? Uh, can they keep all the engineers not to be hired by Intel? Can Intel catch up? So everything I'm worried about is five years later. But for the next three to five years, TSMC share price, even margin sh- should be okay. Okay, so do you think is the last question whether or not um, Morris Chang is saying that's a future me problem? I don't have to deal with it. Let me just look at this for now. <laughs> is that what we're looking at? Like a future me issue? Well, Morris Chang says many, many times that it makes no sense to make in the US. So I'm sure he's against that. But like I say, you know, uh, they, pro- they probably have no choice. 
I can totally see that. I mean, I can see that U.S. wants Taiwan to be in the U.S. It, it makes you know sense from U.S. perspective. I also can understand that Taiwan have no choice. My only point is that I hope that in return, Taiwan should get something in return. It should be a win-win situation for U.S. and Taiwan. U.S. get good technology from TSMC, and Taiwan should get something. I don't know what that something is. Maybe there's already something happening, but I don't see that. So bottom line is that, you know, I'm sure Roy Chen's against that. Uh, he's, what, 92, 93. I mean, so he probably doesn't have to worry about that. But from Taiwan national security perspective, from Taiwan government perspective, I just hope like, they can get something in return that helps Taiwan people. That was ICRT's Hope Go speaking with tech stock specialist Kirk Young, the chairman of Kirkland Capital. Moving on now, and China this week lifted its most stringent coronavirus measures just weeks after protests against the controls erupted in some of the country's major cities. And here in Taiwan, small rallies and government voices were supportive of those protests. A candlelight vigil and a rally in support of the Chinese protesters took place at the Liberty Square in Taipei. And both of those events attracted Taiwanese, Hong Kongers and Chinese residents who had moved to Taiwan. While the Mainland Affairs Council was urging China to respond to the people People's demands by making changes to what it described as Beijing's harsh and excessive coronavirus restrictions. The council also called on Beijing to treat the protests peacefully and rationally while respecting the freedom of the people. Now, the KMT also released a statement concerning the protests in China, saying authorities there should accept the needs of the people and moderately relax coronavirus control measures from a scientific and medical perspective. The KMT went on to say that it believes Beijing needs to handle the matter carefully in order to to meet the expectations of peoples on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. And on Wednesday of this week, the UK's Guardian newspaper published an interview with Foreign Minister Joseph Wu in which he expressed his concern that Beijing could seek to use Taiwan as a scapegoat if demonstrations in China restarted. And he told the Guardian that the government is always concerned that the Chinese government might try to create an external crisis to divert domestic attention. And he went on to say there's concern that the Chinese government will aim any of this irie at Taiwan, accusing the island of being the cause of the unrest in China. So, Dimitri, I mean, the rallies were pretty small. They attracted about 100 people for both of them, I believe, according to the local media. And what do you think they were calling for? Were they, I mean, who were these people that went and what were they actually asking for? Well, they're asking for change and they're hoping that uh, the situation could quickly improve in China. Uh, well, there is... Um, little hope that things will change overnight but perhaps over time we might see some 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 improvements um back to your the other question about uh, the minister's comments on these issues uh well i hope that we don't comment too much on that because first it's not happening uh here in taiwan and it's i think for a government official to comment on something that is not directly related to Taiwan, I think in the end it's going to just create more issues. So we do hope that the situation will improve in China and then uh, the, the health situation will also improve because it will in the end bounce back during the, the, the spring festival, during the, the Chinese New Year. You will have a lot of people coming back. So if the situation improves in China, that will be good news for Taiwan. But when it comes to the speed of the change and the improvements, well, I think we should be more careful. And then, especially for government officials, we don't need maybe to rush and try to occupy the, the, the moral ground like we usually do. Let's wait and see a little bit. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, Joseph Wu's comments, um, 
I'm sure that he's obviously expecting that Xi Jinping is paying very close attention to what he says and, of course, will heed all of his advice. Um, Now, uh, realistically, obviously, Joseph Wu's comments were for domestic and international press consumption. I don't think that realistically he thinks that Xi Jinping is going to change his behavior based on on what he says. but it is important to add, you know, a, a positive voice to calls for a change in China, which we all hope will come. Um, now, it does appear that China is loosening the restrictions, but it, it's, it's still, at least as of yesterday, pretty unclear what this is going to mean in practice. And there's been uh, disparities between different local governments and their responses. In other words, uh, certain uh, areas in the country seem to be responding or interpreting the loosening instructions from the central government in one way, whereas other ones uh, in other ways, and there seems to be quite a bit of confusion. So at this point, we really don't know what's going to happen. Now, as Dimitri noted, if they do loosen up, in the long term, this is probably going to be good for Taiwan. Um, If China's economy gets back on track, and it's been taking a lot of damage from uh, the the dynamic zero COVID policy, then, you know, there are positive effects for the world economy, obviously, and Taiwan included. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, more importantly, the people's lives in China hopefully will improve. But there's kind of the, the problem that the Chinese government faces and is that they've not prepared for this at all. They've been focusing on testing and not really pushing vaccination rates, uh, particularly amongst the elderly, which they should have started ages ago. You know, they required everybody to have tests on a regular basis every 48 hours or so. But they didn't really require people to get vaccinated. And so the, the estimates are that if the if Omicron outbreak occurs, which is expected based on the experience in Hong Kong, which also used the not very effective Chinese vaccines, the number of people who will die will probably number in the millions. And the number of ICU beds in China is something three point something, I believe, per hundred thousand, which is far less than what in Hong Kong. So they're going to face a series of emergencies and the winter is about the worst time for them to loosen up. So they, they kind of created a, a, a trap for themselves on this because, of course, you've also got seasonal flu and other things which are going to fly around in the winter. So there's a lot, I think, to China, a lot of challenges ahead for China. And, I, you know, obviously for the Chinese people, we hope that, uh, you know, this is managed well. But it, all indications are that the Chinese Communist Party and their very long record of not handling things very well. Uh, Things don't look good on that front. And Dimitri, of course, there was a report this week, in fact yesterday, in the Wall Street Journal that said Terry Guo wrote a letter to the Beijing leadership several weeks ago asking for them to relax some of their coronavirus restrictions. But Honhai and Terry Guo's office haven't commented on this letter. Yeah, uh, that's one. the point I was trying to make earlier is that Taiwan has a really clear understanding of the situation in China because of the expat community in China. They are, Taiwanese are everywhere, their ears are open and they know exactly what's happening. So from our side in Taiwan, if 
government officials try to make comments on specific situations in China, or if the what I mean, there we go sending a letter to the leadership in China. It's really it's hard to get this kind of information. But when these come into when when we hear of these in the media, that could be a concern for people in the ground. So. Uh, officials should sometimes say a bit less. I think it's important, yes, to uh, express uh, Taiwan's position on these issues, but we shouldn't be too specific. Uh, this is a very unstable situation in China. I don't know if you remember a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, um, there was the the UK Prime Minister who made some comments about they were they were they were protesting in Iran. And the minister, the, the prime minister, made a comment. He made the wrong comment, but this had serious consequences. So I think we should, and I hope, if I could also give a, a maybe a suggestion to our minister, is to speak a bit less on these issues and be very careful uh, when you uh, share uh, your thoughts on these uh, protests in China right now. And Donovan, what about Terry Guo's letter? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the you know, officials in China are much more likely to listen to, to Terry Go because he has massive investments in China um, and has a bit more of a pro-China slant than they are going to listen to Joseph Wu, who they've branded as an enemy and put him on a blacklist. Um, so, you know, how much they're going to listen to Terry Go, I don't know, but they're more likely to listen to him than to, to, than to Joseph Wu. And in some post-local election news this week, the DPP's Legislative Caucus on Monday announced that it's seeking to amend the Civil Servants Election and Recall Act in order to ban people with certain criminal convictions from running from public office. Now, according to the party caucus, the amendments target those who have been convicted of crimes related to organised crime gangs, money laundering, as well as firearms and drugs offences. And speaking at a press conference, caucus Deputy Secretary General Lin Qingyi said the louche backgrounds and lifestyles of some politicians and their affiliated political organisations are stopping ethical people from participating in both national and local politics. Now, on Thursday of this week, DPP lawmaker Lord Jia Chung proposed broadening the bans, saying those have also been found guilty of violating Anti-Infiltration Act regulations, the National Security Act, the Classified National Security Information Protection Act and the National Intelligence Services Act should also be banned from running from public office. So Donovan there, obviously, the DPP is... Do you think this is a reaction to allegations by certain members of the DPP in the immediate aftermath of the election that a slightly well-known DPP candidate had some rather dubious people on his campaign and that's why he lost? <laughs> um, well, OK, so basically, you know, the DPP introducing this now is, frankly... A, a very bad PR move on their part. Um, the, the 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 fact of the matter is, it comes across. It's it's not necessarily a bad idea to you know ban people with convictions from um, you know with organized connections to organized crime from running for office. But the problem is, is that the DPP just lost not just one, but a whole string of elections to people who have actually been either convicted, such, in Miao, such as in Miao Li, 
of crimes related to um, organized crime, and, and in the case of Miao Li, actually being involved in a murder. Um, you know, the KMT won there, but then you've also got in Elon, you know, the KMT candidate won there, who's actually under investigation and actually in court right now on trial over allegations of a widespread corruption scandal. So this comes across as kind of as sour grapes at a lot of their losses, and it looks like what they're trying to do is block a lot of these candidates that beat them in this election from running again. Um, and so the timing of this looks very bad because it looks very much like it's connected to their emotions and feelings about how they fared in the last election. So it's not like I say, it's not necessarily a bad idea to bring this up, but their timing couldn't be worse, frankly. Well, I agree. It makes a lot of sense. But the only concern I have is how do you define criminal conviction in a way that suits your needs? Because if you look at, for example, there was a big issue during the, the last elections is plagiarism. Though it's not a crime, it's not a big deal, but it hurts uh, those and all these students. We all went through through college, difficult time uh, with our thesis. And so if it's not a crime uh, to copy and paste somebody else's uh, documents or, or thesis, well, it's not a crime, but... Yes, uh, the, the game here is going to be about how do you define crime and then in a way that is not uh, to help your own candidates and then block uh, your opponents from running again. Another problem is that in Taiwan, when you get convicted, sometimes you ask your wife to run in the election for you. So uh, it, should we also include that in the law? And then if it's not your wife, it could be your kid, it could be anyone. So we have a very flexible way of defining crimes in Taiwan. And the Taiwanese are kind of also very flexible in the way of uh, we have some very uh, famous uh, gangsters who are extremely popular. I uh, remember uh, when it was like 20 years ago when I, I was at the legislative UN, there was one member of the legislative UN who was, everybody knew, that he belonged to the local mob uh, in Taichung County area. But the guy was very friendly and he was on TV almost every day. So, yes, gangsters are sometimes also very friendly. <laughs> sometimes it's just your wife running for you. And then, well, also we copy and paste other people's document, which is a national sport at the legislative UN, because if you look carefully at the laws and propositions, they usually copy legislations from other countries. So, yes, I think the, the, the biggest challenge here is going to be defining what is a crime or not. <laughs> I'm not sure whether you're talking about Yan Qingbiao or Fu Quanxi. That'll be one of those two. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I met Yen Qingbiao, and yeah, he was friendly, um, but obviously he has some a serious, crim, serious uh, criminal record. Um, he's not in the legislature any, any longer, um, but Fu Quanxi is, um, and, uh, you know, obviously there's been, in, particularly if you go back into the 90s, there was a lot of politicians who intentionally went you know, who got elected to the legislature to avoid criminal prosecutions. Exactly. Um, I mean, the, the problem, one of the problems that the DPP faces uh, is that their candidates and their voter base t 
tends to hold them to a high, higher standard because they're considered the reform party, meaning that they're the party that, that voters look to to make reform changes to move things forward, whereas KMT voters generally don't have such high expectations of the candidates. So where you've got Lin Zhijian in, you know, in Taoyuan, he was found to have plagiarized his two of his theses, um, and he was forced to step down. But in you know, Miao Li, you have someone who was actually convicted, convicted of, a, of a murder and also for uh, you know, various crimes involved with organized, uh, with organized crime. And, but voters elected him. So the two parties are held to very different standards, and I think this smells a lot like the DPP is trying to level the playing field on that front to benefit them themselves here. Uh, but another catch is, of course, once someone has been convicted of a crime and has done their time in prison, should they be considered rehabilitated or not? And that that's a kind of a moral issue that, I think people need to think about. Sometimes people do a crime, serve the time in prison, and then come out and they're not the same person. They, they've paid the punishment for it. And should they be deprived of their political rights as, as, as you know, once they've actually served their time? So, I mean, there, there, there are definitely different ways to look at this, but I do think fundamentally right now, this smells more like a political ploy to try and benefit the DPP for its own interests. So it's, it doesn't, I, I don't think this timing looks very good at all. Yeah, agree. Uh, the situation right now, and uh, well, we also hope the ruling party actually try to look into the reasons why uh, they lost in the election. Uh, well, they can for sure blame the, the opposition party, they can blame some of the candidates, but they should also look into their own actions and what did they go wrong, what did they do wrong when it comes to plagiarism, as we mentioned, this way of very a vague way of defining what is right is wrong. Uh, when we saw the, the even the president not even taking side or siding with uh, uh, the, the ruling party candidate, uh, that that's that's going to be for the ruling party and the opposition party to to look they will have to look in these the issues together in the near future and we have to take a short break now here on taiwan this week but we will return after these rather important commercials Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And the Cabinet this week approved a draft amendment proposing that all newly constructed, added or altered structures should have rooftop solar panels installed. The move is part of the government's efforts to boost the use of renewable energy. And under the proposal, building owners will be allowed to sell the electricity generated or use it for themselves. Now, according to Deputy Economics Minister Tsang Wen-Sheng, Taiwan has a total installed capacity of 9.3 million kilowatt hours of solar energy. And of that total, some 65% currently comes from rooftop solar panels. And the Deputy Minister said if lawmakers passed the draft amendment on mandating installation of said rooftop solar panels, it will require them to be incorporated into building designs, circumventing the need for retrofitting and providing buildings with extra installation from the sun. So, Dimitri, this sounds on paper like a really good idea. 
All new buildings should have solar panels. But there are some problems, Dimitri. The first one that comes to my mind is that lots of high-rise buildings here do not actually have flat roofs. Yeah, exactly. It's, they're not just flat, but they're usually pretty small. So uh, I don't know how you place your solar panels, but when you look at the size of most buildings in Taipei area, for example, there isn't much space for uh, solar panels. And also, if there are, if it's a community building, uh, rooftops are also used for other purposes nowadays. The, some people actually uh, do the laundry upstairs. And in some uh, high-end buildings in Taipei area, you can even have swimming pools. So it will be, well, a discussion. It, will be, it won't be easy to, to make people accept to install solar panels on the rooftop. I think it's also, the government is also telling us that they're kind of admitting that over the next few years, there might not be enough electricity uh, because of the... Uh, the growing demand for electricity in Taiwan. At one point, maybe based on the numbers they have, they need to find more solutions. And they maybe hope that uh, by bringing those uh, solar panels into into the network, maybe they can raise the output in in the future. But this goes back to the first issue is given the size, the size of those rooftops in most buildings in Taipei and knowing that Ninety uh, percent plus of the buildings, like Taipei area, are actually old buildings. So unless you offer incentives to landlords to install those, I don't think it's going to be uh, a big game changer over the next two or three years. Well, yeah, I think you put it very well when you said it looks really good on paper. Um, the thing is, I, you know, it, Taiwan definitely needs more power, uh, as Dimitri noted. There, you know, this is one of the key shortages that Taiwan faces. There's a lot of risk there. Uh, from a national security perspective, having more distributed sources of power is good because it's very hard, for example, for the People's Liberation Army to take out every solar panel in the country, but it's very easy to take out you know, transformers or key infrastructure that can shut down Taiwan's grid. So having a diversified source, diversified sources of energy, uh, you know, for national security reasons, is a good idea. Uh, but then there's some concerns. Dimitri noted some of the potential concerns about uh, with uh, about roofs. There's some other ones uh, which I can add. Is that some buildings are built in the shadow of other buildings, for example, where you're not going to get much power. Uh, out of these buildings if you've got a short building surrounded by much taller buildings, for example. So there, there are some concerns about a one-size-fits-all approach. There are cases where putting solar panels on the roof of a building makes a lot of sense, and in other cases where it makes zero sense at all. Um, so, you know, hopefully, it, well, you know, broadly speaking, this seems like a good idea. I think, you know, like I say, I think it's good for national security reasons um, and to help boost Taiwan's energy supply. But really what they they need to look at, I mean, they need to have some flexibility in this uh, to make sure that you do get, you know, it does make sense on the buildings that they're putting them on because otherwise it just adds costs and already Taiwan's housing uh, costs are through the roof, and this could just exacerbate that existing problem. And, um, 
you know, they're, they also really might want to be looking more at the feed-in tariffs. In other words, how much money is paid to these solar panels for the power supplied, because then they might have a better chance at getting people to do this voluntarily rather than by fiat. In other words, you know, there there are, you know, right now, a lot of buildings aren't putting on solar panels because it's just not worth it. It doesn't really make sense financially to do so. If they made it so that it did make some sense, now that would probably mean raising electricity rates, which Taiwan's are extremely low by world standards. Um, you know, then you might see a more voluntary adoption. So they may want to look more into ways to encourage people to do it voluntarily than doing it entirely by fiat. And, Dimitri, do you think possibly the government should be looking at commercial buildings to begin with? Well, it's even more complicated for them because uh, commercial buildings, space is money, right? So if you dedicate some space for those panels, they need to understand exactly what money they're going to make out of it. If you look at a building like Taipei 101, for example, how, where are you going to fit your, your solar panels? Uh, yes, you could I, retrofitting. I mean, the cost would be so high. It would be much, much easier to just use uh, government land and then just install those uh, large solar farms than wasting money in, in, in fitting those uh, panels into each individual building, negotiating with the landlords. It would take years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've also got the issue of many buildings. Uh, I think this is what Dimitri's getting at, is that a lot of buildings in Taiwan, you have individual owners for all of the different apartments. And, you know, then the cost of this would then be passed on to each of them, but you're going to get disputes between all of the individual landlords and some of them who don't want to pay and... There's a whole kettle, whole you know, new kettle of fish here. Now, when it comes to new buildings, it's obviously a lot more feasible than trying to retrofit old ones. So, from my understanding of what the proposed law is, is that if it's a new building, it need, they would need to be planned into it, or if they want to make major changes to an existing structure, it would need to be included, rather than all buildings being re- retrofitted with them. So that makes a bit more sense because, yeah, as Dimitri notes, trying to retrofit every building in the country would be enormously costly and very, very difficult. Um, but again, if you know, even with new, new structures or major renovations of older ones, some flexibility would need to be in there to adapt to circumstances, because in some cases it just doesn't make any sense. And before we go this week, while CNN.com was mentioning Taiwan and articles about US arms sales to the island and Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing's new fab in Arizona, CNN.com Travel was running a piece headlined Taiwan's living hell traffic is a tourism problem, say critics. Now, the article appears to be based on a Facebook page called Taiwan is a living hell for pedestrians and is tagged with that page is tagged as a non-governmental organisation by the social media company. 
company. Now, according to CNN, the page was founded by a Taiwanese citizen who returned to the island after living in Melbourne. Now, the article, of course, garnered the attention of local cable television news channels who diligently, rather, dispatched their SNG vans and outside broadcast teams to track down a foreigner or two in order to get to the root of the story as it was based on tourism issues. So, Dimitri, you're a foreigner, you live here. Do you think Taiwan's traffic woes are as bad as this article made them out to be? Oh, there is room for improvement for sure. Taiwan is improving, maybe not fast enough, but when it comes to international standards like a sidewalk and then uh, the rules, in Taiwan, when you're on the road, everything is allowed unless it's not allowed. So if there is no, sometimes the way we behave on the road, uh, we wouldn't, uh, well, as long as the cop is not here, we can uh, turn right at the, the red lights. So there are things that need to be improved for sure. But if we want to bring more international tourists and uh, to Taiwan, well, yes, we need to raise the standards. We, be, be, we need to be more demanding. And when it comes to uh, traffic regulations, uh, we're pretty safe in Taipei City. Taipei County, I think it's safe. But some places around the island, uh, some residents have a different uh, interpretation of traffic laws. Well, I mean, the problem I found with the article was the, kind of the question is relative to what? And the examples that they compared Taiwan to were the UK and Japan. Now, Taiwan has a population density and a physical density which make them really not a very good comparison points. Um, and of course, there are other countries you know, around the region that, where the traffic is exponentially worse than Taiwan's. I think Taiwan's is kind of middling um, in the region as far as traffic safety. Obviously, if you go to China or Vietnam, I mean, it's far worse there than it is here. And in fact, Taiwan's traffic used to be far, far worse than it is now. That being said, as Dimitri noted, obviously there is still room for improvement. Um, but, you know, I, I felt like the, the article was unbalanced because it really was trying to, it was, it was not an apples to apples uh, comparison. I, I think that it was really kind of taking Taiwan a little bit out of context. Um, but again, yes, there, there is room for improvement. And that's where we have to leave it here now. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Dimitri Buyas. Hi, it was good to be here. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Always great to be on the show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.